Hello again, literati listeners, and welcome to our second ever episode, which I mean by some counts is kind of the first. I feel a pilot is, like, slightly meant to crash. My name is Timothy Petkovic, and you're listening to Bookslā, less problematically subtitled as the Hong Kong Book Club. In today's episode, I am thrilled to announce I'm speaking to renowned historian Dr. Jeffrey Wasserstrom, or Wasserstrom, if you Americanize it. Wasserstrom holds degrees from UC Santa Cruz, Harvard, and UC Berkeley. He's written a bajillion books on China, appears across newspapers, blogs, Twitter, and his book, China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, is one of the bestsellers for Oxford University Press. Oh, and he's the Chancellor's Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine. And in 2009, Wasserstrom became editor of the Journal of Asian Studies. But that is okay, that is okay. I'm not insecure. Since COVID, I've got really into making banana bread. This podcast, Wasserstrom will be discussing Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink, published in New York by Columbia Global Reports this year, 2020. You can also check out our Instagram page at the Hong Kong Book Club for full bibliographic details there. If the integrity of my endorsement has now been compromised by this piece of shameless self-promotion, you don't just have to take my word for it. Vigil has been lauded as a remarkable and remarkably succinct analysis of the ongoing crisis in Hong Kong by Julia Lovell, author of Maoism, A Global History. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for for joining me. I thought it would make sense for the first subject matter to be the front matter. So why is it called Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink? So the book was actually going to be called Hong Kong on the Brink. That was what I thought of when we were planning the book in, in 2018. The idea for this was that Hong Kong has been teetering on the edge for, for quite some time now, on the edge of losing some of the qualities that had made it so special. Though it turned out there's another book called Hong Kong on the Brink already out there, which actually deals with 1967. So Hong Kong clearly has been on the brink before. It's a, it's a city that's been on the edge of changes at many different times. So then it was actually the editor I was working with at Columbia Global Reports, Jimmy So, the Hong Konger himself, living in New York, who suggested, why don't we call it Vigil? I originally thought that the book would end with the 2019 30th anniversary of the 1989 massacre in um, Beijing being marked with a big vigil at Victoria Park. And I was going to attend that. I had never attended one of the vigils, even though I'd worked on Tiananmen ever since the event took place. It felt even then as though it might be the last of the vigils. And now, of course, it seems the last of the legally authorized But then as 2019, the events picked up and the protests continued, the term vigil took on added meanings too in the sense that a vigil means you sit vigil beside an ailing person who's dear to you, and in this case, to a city that's dear to me. So vigil being vigilant, watching what's happening, and then there actually were vigils for protesters who had been injured or political suicides that had taken place. So it, it took on added meaning then as, uh, as a title. Now, you also make a passing reference to Lewis Krah, 
who was the former editor of Fortune magazine in the 1990s. And you say that he wasn't the only, quote, Cassandra in the Western media, unquote. So Cassandra, Vigil, that made me think of Virgil. <laughs> was there a sense in which you were also positioning yourself as a kind of um, powerless prophet, speaking truth to China, perhaps, but not being heeded by the West. This is my only kind of pretentious BBC-style question, by the way. So, uh, They're not all like this. Well, that's a wonderful thing to suggest, but I really wasn't thinking of Virgil at all, except then it was very funny when um, the audiobook version was first advertised online, there was a typo, and it was listed as Virgil. And so I thought that was, that was just such a, an interesting twist. And, and I told a friend of mine who's a classicist that I could feel like I was an honorary member of her club. And I know that turned out not to be as niche a question as I fretted. But could you also explain for our listeners a bit about what got you interested in Hong Kong and also China more generally? So I sort of stumbled into Chinese studies. I was a history major at UC Santa Cruz, and there was an opportunity for some students to go to China. And this was in the late 1970s when very few Americans were able to go. So I started learning that version of the Chinese language. I've sometimes wished more recently that I had learned Cantonese instead or as well. I was also interested in the history of revolution. That was the topic that drew me most. And China was so full of upheavals and rebellions and revolutions that I got hooked on that. And then when I went to graduate school, I started focusing on China. And I had an opportunity then doing my dissertation research on the history of Chinese student movements to go to Shanghai for a year. And in the middle of that year, at the Lunar New Year break, my wife was over with me and we decided we definitely wanted to go to Hong Kong. At that point, Hong Kong was still a British colony. And we went there really in part just for rest and relaxation, a chance to get back in touch in a sense with a part of the West. I didn't really know much about the city, but I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the natural landscape and also the quality of life, the ability to go out and eat a different cuisine every night. Now you can do that in Shanghai. But in the 1980s, Shanghai was a very dull place. There was very few restaurants, very little to do for entertainment, and very little access to nature. So Hong Kong had this amazing combination of things. And I stayed at the University of Hong Kong guest house. It was halfway up the peak, really stunning views, stunning places to walk. At that point, I thought of going to Hong Kong as a break from the kinds of things I was studying, which were protests. In Shanghai in 1986, there had been a series of student protests that were kind of a lead up to a practice round for Tiananmen. But when I got to Hong Kong, there were no protests. Hong Kong, in my mind, was a place that I went for a break from China, a break from the kinds of issues that I was thinking about a lot in China, which were struggles for democracy and change. And so it's been ironic over time as I've continued going, often stopping in Hong Kong on my way to Shanghai. Increasingly, Hong Kong became the one place that I went in Asia where I was sure I would see student activism. So in the long arc of my career, it's been a kind of twist. And on the subject of Hong Kong activism, you start off the acknowledgements by saying this short book was written quickly. But I wonder whether there was still an anxiety about being superseded by contemporary events, protests over the anti-extradition law. Did you feel you were sort of chasing after the story? I don't know. Tristram Shandy Sorda. <laughs> there was a sense that there was no way to know when to end the story. The movement was surprising. Even in May of 2019, 
there was no sense that something bigger than the umbrella movement was about to start. It's been a reminder, and this year Belarus is a reminder, social movements involve so many choices by so many people, they baffle prediction. I really felt when I was writing in the summer of 2019 that the movement might well end, but it kept going. So I picked October 1st as a kind of arbitrary endpoint. Uh, but it wasn't the only endpoint. You know, Anthony Daparan, who wrote City on Fire, he chose the district elections as an endpoint. We were both writing at the same time. He went a little bit longer and he had that moment of at least partial triumph of November. Mine, I think, ended on a, a somewhat sadder note. Clearly, the year 2019 stood out as an important one. So I feel good about being able to cover most of that year. And at the opposite end of the spectrum from endpoints, you take pains in vigil to contextualise Hong Kong, tracing the historical tussles over it. You jump right back to the early 1840s, in fact, with the end of the First Opium War. Could you explain for our listeners the significance of this period? Why start here? So 1841 is crucial, 1842, because it's when Hong Kong started on the route to being a globally important place. It was only regionally significant and not even that significant before this period. There are debates about how much was there already, but it clearly was not a place that people would have imagined being an internationally important port until the British claimed it a victor's prize in the Opium War. And I also like starting with that moment because it's the first time that an erroneous prediction was made about Hong Kong. Lord Palmerston, who was the foreign secretary in London, when he heard that Hong Kong was going to be the prize for the British, that the negotiator had gotten Captain Elliot, he basically fired Elliot for having getting such an unpromising spot, a barren hill with hardly a home upon it. He said there would never be a great mart of trade. I, I moved pretty quickly from the 1840s up to the period of Communist Party rule of the mainland, which then called into question what would happen, what would happen to Hong Kong. I, mean, I talk about how Hong Kong grew from just the islands being a British colony to also part of Kowloon in 1860 after another war becoming part of the British colony, and then the so-called new territories being added with a 99-year lease in 1898, which was why that lease running out made 1997 a moment that was going to be important for Hong Kong one way or another. So I kind of move through that history very quickly and then slow down the pace when we get to the period after 1997. And I know you've touched on it now, but could you talk us through, firstly, how the piecemeal accumulation of Hong Kong led to the 1984 drafting of the Basic Law? And then secondly, how this helped formalise a pretty ambivalent union between East and West under the one country, two systems policy. So I think it's important to remember in the mid-1980s what the idea was about where China might be heading. This was after Mao, and Deng Xiaoping had said that he was committed to taking China in a different direction, to reforming and opening up. So with the handover looming in the sense that the lease was going to run out in 1997, the British wanted to have some kind of guarantee that the life of the city would not be completely transformed once it became part of the Communist Party-run state. And it, this was a grand experiment in a lot of ways. The idea was that Hong Kong would be able to remain substantially different for 50 years after becoming part of the PRC. So this idea was one country, two systems, that Hong Kong would be part of the country of China. And what everybody agreed on, that would mean that it wouldn't have its own defense force, it wouldn't have its own diplomacy. 
But then there was ambiguity built into it, and there have been differing interpretations of what the two systems part meant. What was it exactly that Hong Kong would be able to remain separate? And I think what's become clear now is that the Chinese Communist Party thinks that the only part of the system that should be different is economic life. And to some extent, that's what Deng Xiaoping and Thatcher were both thinking, to the extent we can access their thinking. Hong Kong would have a capitalist system, a different system of commerce and finance, where Thatcher miscalculated, and many other people miscalculated as well, was an assumption that if China became more and more capitalist, and the whole country would inevitably become more liberal democratic. And this was something that was starting to happen in other parts of East Asia, and that would continue to happen in other parts of East Asia. You had authoritarian states that once they became more market-oriented, became more democratic. South Korea, Taiwan, those had been right-wing autocratic, and the expectation was that somehow that would happen um, with China. So Thatcher's bet was that as long as Hong Kong could maintain its own system economically, that over time, it would be able to maintain its other differences as well, including a different legal system. A message for the Chinese people. My concerns are obviously very much with Hong Kong. We are responsible for Hong Kong, for the people of Hong Kong, until 1997. And we have reached an agreement with the government of China about the future of Hong Kong, which enables her capitalist economy uh, of Hong Kong to continue for some 50 years. We have watched China, uh, Tiananmen Square, with great anxiety. Before that, our hopes were rising. I know that the Chinese government is restoring more of the economic freedom and encouraging it. I believe that gradually you will find that more democracy will come to that country. On the other hand, I'm not sure how naive Thatcher really was about free markets changing China's ideology. I mean, Deng Xiaoping literally said in private table talks with Thatcher, I could walk in and take the whole lot this afternoon, meaning Hong Kong. To which she replied, there is nothing I could do to stop you, but the eyes of the world would now know what China is like. So all Thatcher had, and this was during the talks for the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration, which preceded and um, shaped the Hong Kong Basic Law, was a perhaps tenuous moral argument over a territory that the British had seized piece by piece. And these sorts of tensions were kind of inherent to the Basic Law itself, which is a pretty ambiguous document. Could you talk us through some of these ambiguities? So there were, there were a variety of things that were ambiguous about the structure. One was that the deal that was struck was that Hong Kong would be able to stay the way it was in 1997 for 50 years. Chris Patton, as the last governor of Hong Kong, wanted to make it at least a bit more democratic than it had ever been when it was purely a British colony, so that what it was in 1997 would have more protections uh, for the people of Hong Kong. This was seen as playing unfair by the Chinese authorities in Beijing, who said, when we made a deal that Hong Kong could stay the way it was in 1997 for 50 years, we meant that it would be what it was when we made this deal. So both sides were trying to finagle things in different directions. What we've seen recently is that Beijing has increasingly said the basic law means whatever we say it meant. Could you give us an example? 
one quite specific thing that was written into the basic law was divided up who would be in control of what, what would be Beijing's responsibility, what would be the local responsibility. There were ambiguities into it saying that over time, Hong Kong's people would get to choose its chief executive. But what exactly did that mean? Did that mean that they would have a say in who was chosen? They had never had any say in who was chosen as the governor, was somebody appointed by London. Beijing said, we're giving Hong Kong's people a say by having this small group of electors, well under 2,000 people in a city of millions, who could help vote for who the chief executive was, but only choose among vetted candidates by Beijing. Beijing could say, we're still allowing Hong Kong's people more of a say than they had under the British. And on the other side, Hong Kong people could say, understandably, by my point of view, we don't really have a say. But one thing that was clearly spelled out was that laws governing things like sedition would be determined by the Hong Kong government. And this was Article 23 of the Basic Law. And that's what's been violated this year. One of the funny things which you're very aware of in Vigil is that while you're tracing all the historical backdrop to the new national security law, the movement's younger activists won't even remember a time before the handover. So how important do you think a sense of all this historical context is to the average young honky? I think generation is an incredibly important thing, and it's what I, I, I emphasize a lot in the book. It's important at two levels. One is what you remember from an earlier time or not, but the other is how long you'll be alive after this date of 2047 when kind of all bets were off, that the 50-year grace period would be over. Different generations had different senses of what it was like to be free of British colonial rule, which had its repressive side, whether you took any kind of pride in the end of colonialism, which many people in Hong Kong did, whatever their political views of the Communist Party were, or whether you don't even remember that and you don't have any reservoir of good feeling or anything about the People's Republic of China as being what helped end colonial, colonial period. And it's interesting in Vigil, which is a very compact book, novella length, that you still make many parallels to the current Hong Kong situation, finding lots of analogues, um, West Berlin, Shanghai, Taiwan, even as you intone kind of mantra-like at the end of the book, history does not repeat itself. Right. A lot of what we've seen in different stages has been a recurrence of certain grievances and certain concerns. The first protests, in a way, of this wave was 2012, the pushback against the imposition of mainland-style patriotic education into Hong Kong, which is a very all-too-topical term right now because Donald Trump has just called for patriotic education in the United States, which is something for those of us who have been paying attention to Hong Kong, really a horrifying term. I'm a big believer of what I call imperfect analogies. And that means analogies that you go into it saying, this is not going to be a perfect fit, but maybe some element of putting these two things side by side will help us clarify something of one of the cases. So to give a very specific example of it, I've, I've read some wonderful things about Carrie Lam dissecting her position, but rarely have they said, look, there were leaders of Soviet bloc countries, Poland, when it was part of the Soviet kind of empire, Hungary in which you had leaders who were claiming to represent the local population, but knew that if certain things happened, troops would come in, 
from Moscow. I read some things about her, about Carrie Lam, that make her seem just sui, sui generis. And yes, the Hong Kong situation is unique, but in that sense, and here's where a different analogy comes in, which is that Tibet, when Tibet first became part of the People's Republic of China in the early 1950s, a promise was made to Tibetans that they would largely be able to preserve their traditional way of life, even while being part of this Communist Party-run country. And in that case, it wasn't exactly the same thing. That specific way of life was largely defined in religious terms. But we saw a pattern in that where over time, the center tried to exert more and more control over Tibet and make it more like just another part of the PRC. So you have some ways a parallel, not a perfect parallel, of what happened in Tibet in the 1950s, ending in 1959 with, uh, with a crushing of uh, moves towards separation and the Dalai Lama fleeing into exile. You have something of a precursor for what happened in Hong Kong. And there were people within Hong Kong who used that analogy to think about their situation. So I think using these different um, analogies can be helpful as long as we don't fall into the trap of thinking there's such a good fit that they'll allow us to predict the future. And just to backtrack to Tibet, which is obviously a very sensitive subject, but you write a particular comment about it in the book, which I'd like to discuss. You say, quote, 2019 could be seen by historians of the future as having a valence for Hong Kongers that 1959 has for Tibetans. In traditional Chinese numerology, 60-year cycles have a significance similar to what centuries have traditionally had in the West. End quote. Now, 2019 is really the very significant date in which the CCP began to exert a more muscular sense of control over Hong Kong. Does the numerological relationship then between 1959 and 2019 suggest that this exertion was inevitable? Or do you think that Hong Kong's varied history and the vacillations in how the territory has been handled shows that things weren't so strategically streamlined? That's a good question to ask. And I do think that there is human agency in these things. And even though it's always, there's always been a strain within the Chinese Communist Party that was obsessed with control and trying to move in the directions that Xi Jinping is taking the country, Xi Jinping was also able to do some of the things that he's been doing because of a global trend toward kind of an autocratic strongman rule. Things that have happened this year have been done in part because of the pandemic that we didn't see coming, distracting the world and allowing things to be done at greater speed than they would have been done in other cases. Protests can have greater or lesser impact. I know there'll be ongoing debates. Did the fact that protesters push so hard speed up the clamping down in Hong Kong? And I think those are just questions that we can never really resolve. And that if the world had moved in a different direction, then we might have been saying, look at how the protests had opened up the space for things to have changed. I'm very aware of what happened in 1989, but not just in China, but also the former Soviet bloc. And many movements that looked like that they were dead ends before 1989, they'd been crushed, they'd been failing. Why would you think that protesting yet again in Poland, in Hungary, East Germany, after all previous efforts to do that had failed, why could they then in 1989 succeed? One reason was that in Moscow, things had changed. Obviously, in Beijing, the fact that a hardline leader has been in control and has remained solidly in control has stacked the deck against Hong Kong. But 
one way of saying this is just there are many different variables involved. And this is why I think saying history doesn't repeat itself is so crucial. A social movement is not operating in a vacuum. The social movement will depend in part on what the rest of the world does. What happens in Belarus is still not certain, in part because it's not just that people there are doing surprising things. The question is how the international community will react, what sort of stakes are involved, what sort of price will a regime pay for backing another regime. So there are many different actors involved in this way. And so I think it's a truly tragic moment, but I don't believe in these things as being completely inevitable because history surprises us too often to think in those terms of uh, inevitability. And segueing from the wrongheadedness of inevitable thinking, I want to talk about analogies again, but false analogies. Because one of the moments in the book that most stayed with me was when you were talking about the 28th of September 2014 during the Umbrella Movement, where a photo was captured of a lone man holding an umbrella while clouds of tear gas swirled around him. And you say that for a time, this photograph, and I'm going to quote you now, seemed as though it might have the kind of impact and longevity as a symbol that the goddess of democracy and the tank man had in 1989, though it ended up having a much shorter half-life as an iconic image. End quote. What I find interesting there, Tiananmen, umbrella, you know, that is, that is in some sense a justifiable, valid association to make. But if the media is focusing on will there be bloodshed, the 2014 picture may instantly pale in comparison to 1989. So I think that's a case where an analogy captures the imagination, but it's taking a complex series of events and boiling it down to one thing when in fact there's a lot in common with the other things. We've seen, uh, Louisa Lim and Graham Smith wrote about the Tiananmen playbook being used in the repression of the Hong Kong protests, including the calling protesters rioters, and protesters then saying, one of our demands is that you stop denigrating us in that way. Talking about external forces and hidden hands and Western nefarious agents, that was something that was done to discredit the protesters in 1989. The revising of events before Beijing started saying, let's not talk about 1989, they came up with a kind of revisionist story about what happened on June 3rd and June 4th, which was that they focused on the violence done by a small number of protesters, the violence done by the crowd, which was very minimal, rather than the violence that was done by the soldiers. In a similar way, there's just been a rewriting of the thug attacks of 2019 by the Hong Kong official media to make it seem as a clash between two gangs as opposed to thugs attacking ordinary civilians and activists. We've seen many replays of Tiananmen-style repression, just not the soldiers on the streets uh, and not the large death toll. You also mention in the acknowledgements your debt of gratitude to a whole bunch of people who encouraged or discouraged you from pursuing particular analogies. So my question is, which ones did not make the cut from earlier drafts? Because <laughs> I have so many, so many analogies in there. Well, I mean, I made, I made choices. I, I made choices. In Hong Kong now, there are some people saying Xinjiang could be our future. And I thought, even though Xinjiang is more on people's minds globally right now than Tibet, the Tibet analogy worked in some ways better. Tibet captures the international imagination, and Hong Kong does, in a way that Xinjiang hasn't until right now for very specific reasons. 
So that was one example of something I played down. And winding down ourselves to the last question, the final section of Vigil is called Battles, but the tone you strike is more kind of elegiac than combative. After more than 10,000 arrests from the 2019-2020 protests, including most recently Joshua Wong's for Unlawful Assembly, what are your hopes for Hong Kong? I don't see any basis for hopefulness in the short run, but Czechoslovakia in 1970, you would say Prague Spring was a complete failure. Actually, there were several young people who had committed suicide just out of despair. And you would think of it as a dead end. And yet, 20 years later, there was the Velvet Revolution. And some of the lead up to those protests were actually a vigil on the 20th anniversary of the death of one of the political suicides, Jan Palak. And that's a long trajectory. The spirit of Hong Kong, the Lion Rock spirit, has not been crushed. There's definitely a turn of the chapter, and it's a very dark chapter. And I would end the book in a more despairing tone right now. But we shouldn't talk about the death of a city. We should talk about the attack on institutions, the fraying of some things about the city that were very special, even the death of some aspects, but not talk about the death of the city. There's still too much to Hong Kong to talk that way. And with that, I'd like to thank the BBC for use of the Margaret Thatcher soundbite, Hong Kong Free Press for the live music they recorded at the 2019 Hong Kong Tiananmen Massacre Vigil, and Kelvin Lee at Music is Water Studio for recording and sound mixing. Above all, Geoffrey, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, it's been a pleasure.